thank you guys. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. Um, perhaps you wonder why such long readings in John. You're all thinking it. You can chuckle. It's okay. Here's why. Because the words recorded in John's gospel are true. The words recorded in John's gospel point to Jesus. The words recorded in John's gospel give life. Preaching, what we're about to engage in right now, preaching is simply trying to take these words and explain them and take these words and apply them and take these words and believe them. And so we read all of it because all of it is true. We read all of it because all of it is what we all need to hear. And so our challenge this morning, our opportunity this morning, our desire this morning is to consider John chapter 5 and to consider the truth that's there and the Jesus who is revealed there. So our sermon this morning is entitled, Equal with God? Question mark. If you want to know the end from the beginning, you can just change the question mark to an exclamation point. Equal with God? Exclamation point. Because what's going on in this passage is through the flow of John's gospel, that's John 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and following, um, for the first time, as recorded in this gospel, Jesus is revealing to um, the leaders of the Jewish people what he claims about himself. Jesus, in this passage, is claiming that he is equal with God the Father. Jesus is claiming that he is God. He's claiming that he's no mere man. He's claiming that he's no mere prophet who was sent as a periodic mouthpiece for God. He is claiming that he is the very son of God who is equal with God. And not only is he equal with God, but the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection from the dead, and everlasting life flow through him. That's the claim. That's the claim. And so the challenge before us this morning is to A, see if that claim is really in this passage, and then B, to ask ourselves, what will we do with this claim from Jesus? And so what we have in this passage um, for my note-taking friends, is we have an event, and then an event creates a tension point. We have an event, and then the event creates a tension point. And the tension point is this. Jesus publicly, before the religious leaders of the Jewish people in Jerusalem at a festival. That's like as focused as it can be. Jesus publicly claims that he's equal with the Father. Jesus publicly claims that he's God. He publicly claims that resurrection, forgiveness of sin, and eternal life flow through him. Now, before we look at the passage, let's, let's do this. Let's do the age of skepticism question. Why does this matter? Because most of us have been pushed to believe that we make Jesus say things that he didn't really say. Most of us have been challenged to, to believe, did Jesus say, really say, that through him and him alone is salvation? We've been pushed and challenged with the question, did Jesus really say 
that he and he alone can forgive sin? Did Jesus really say that the path to eternal life flows through him and him alone? Or did the early church just mess it all up? Did some bishops and some popes along the way kind of read some power struggles into everything and kind of make Jesus into an image that fit power-hungry people? No. What I love about John's gospel is it lets Jesus speak so clearly for himself. It lets us hear Jesus in Jesus' own words. And then it helps us understand. Because like, hey, how many of you are Jewish? Not many of us. How many of you lived in uh, Jerusalem in the first century? None of us, right? How many of us walked the paths and understood all the customs? None of us. And so John does such an eloquent job of helping us understand the real issue. So I'm going to assume that there's somebody in this room that wishes they didn't have to listen to me for the next 30 minutes and wishes I would get to the point. So for, for if that's you, let me serve you well, okay? Look at verse 18. If you're looking for the point of this entire passage, here it is in one verse. John says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So what's at stake in this passage is the claim that Jesus is equal with God the Father, and that God the Son is God in such a way that he can work on the Sabbath and it not be sinful. Now, we could have a ball talking about healings and why people got healed and why some people didn't get healed and all the nuts and bolts of that, but that's really missing the point of this passage because the event, note-taking friends, the event that happens in this passage is really there to set up for us and show us that Jesus is able to do the very things that he claims he is able to do. So the event is the healing, but... In verse 36, Jesus tells us why the healing happened and tells us why the healing led to the conversation that it created. So look at the the back part of verse 36. Jesus says, The testimony I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So why is Jesus healing this man in John 5? If we take Jesus at his own word, Jesus is merely doing the work that God the Father sent him to do. And the purpose of the miracles, the purpose of the work, the purpose of the healing is to show that Jesus is the unique Son of God who came to do the work of God. But that doesn't mean we don't look at the nuance. So just for a few minutes, let's look at this event and what happened. What happens in this event, which is recorded for us in the first 17 verses, is Jesus heals an invalid, but he does so on the Sabbath, the day you're not supposed to do any work, in Jerusalem, amongst the religious leaders, during a festival when all of Israel and all of Judah have gathered for this event. 
And so Jesus, amongst all the people, is in Jerusalem for a festival, which means Jerusalem's going to be very busy and very crowded. And Jesus is in a place called Bethesda. And that's not the small town in Williamson County, south of here. But he's in a place called Bethesda. And there is a, um, it's near a place in Jerusalem called the Sheep Gate, and there's a pool there. Many scholars actually believe there were two pools there. And beside the pools were, were tons of invalids. And, and we're told in the passage that, that by invalid, that means those who are blind, those who are lame, and those who are paralyzed. And we're told in verse 7, based on some interaction, that occasionally at this pool, the water would stir up. And it was believed that when the water was stirred up, the first person in got healed. Like, can you imagine the scene? We're told there's a multitude of invalids hanging out around this pool, and, and the water's going to stir up at, at any moment. It could stir up while you're asleep tonight. It could stir up during your nap time. It could stir up while you went to get everybody a cup of Starbucks. And when it stirs up, the first person in gets healed, and too bad for everybody else. That's what was believed. And so Jesus comes to this, this man and there's a multitude of invalids all around. And Jesus comes to him. We don't know why he came to this one and not another one. We don't know why he came to one and not all of them. And those are questions that will have to be for another sermon. But yet Jesus comes to this one man and he says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And I don't think the man was being facetious. I don't think he was being antagonistic. But he just simply said, of course, but there's no one to get me into the water. So clearly his malady prevented him from getting up and getting into the water. And so Jesus, so the man kind of looks at Jesus. He's like, look, what do you think? I'm here by the pool waiting my turn. But when the water stirs up, everybody else races in and I'm kind of just left sitting here. So I've never won the race. I've never been the first one in line and I've never been the first one into the pool. So Jesus very simply looks at him Verse 8 says, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once, we're told, the man was healed. He took up his bed, and he walked away. Now, what do we make of that? Here's what we make. The man was unable to walk. He was lame. Had been so, we're told, for 38 years. Jesus looks at him. He says, Get up, take your bed, and walk, which means Jesus healed him immediately, and he was able to get up and take his bed and walk. Now, let's cut the guy some slack. If that happened to you, would you pause and go, hold on, what's today? Saturday. Can't do it, Jesus. Anybody? Anybody? No, like, like you get up, you roll up your bed, and you walk away. But this event happened on the Sabbath. Now listen, God created the Sabbath. It was a day of, of rest and worship. And over time, um, new regulations, which were not the regulations that God spoke, were, were added to the Sabbath to make sure that no one might possibly accidentally violate the principle of the Sabbath. So think about it this way. I don't want you to get wet. And it might rain today, so I'm just going to preach till tomorrow. Feels a little bit excessive, right? 
but I just don't want you to get wet. I would hate for you on your way to your car to possibly get some water on you, okay? It feels a little, so that's kind of what was going on here. All these regulations had been mounted up as a protection to make sure that no one accidentally violated the Sabbath. And so nowhere in the scripture does it say you can't pick up your bed and move it on the Sabbath. But that law had been created. So the Jewish leaders see the man, and and this is in verses um, 9 and following, they see the man, and rather than saying, hey, didn't you used to be the invalid? Yeah, yeah, I'm so, so happy that, that you've been healed. They said, you broke the law. You broke the law. And it's not even, like, they can't even go chapter and verse. They can't even go, Deuteronomy 4, 3 says, thou shalt not pick up thy mat on the Sabbath. But you broke the law. And so the man is like, man, look, I'm safe. The dude who told me I was well said to do it, so I did it. And they're like, well, who told you that? And he looks around in the crowd, but because Jerusalem is bustling with people, they can't even find Jesus. He doesn't know who healed him. And so later we're told Jesus comes and finds him. Jesus comes and finds him. And Jesus says, see, you are well. This is verse 14. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, just for a moment, what we need to know is that throughout the gospel narratives, healing and forgiveness of sins get merged together. And it's not merged together because everyone is has a malady because they're sinful. It's not as if the New Testament would say, if you would just get holy, your cancer would go away. If you would just get holy, um, your body would be fixed. That's not the message of the New Testament. But the message of the New Testament is that he who can heal your body can also forgive your sin because sin and death work together. And so that's what Jesus is saying there. And we'll even talk about this more in a few weeks. Jesus tells the man, see your well, sin no more. Now what I find just hilarious about this passage, and I'm not sure that John meant for it to be funny, but but follow the the, the strain of thought here. Jesus comes and says, hey, I made you well, sin no more, lest something else happen to you. And then the guy goes to the religious leaders and tattles on Jesus. Like, am I the only person that finds that hilarious? In a couple eight-year-olds, right? Like, like... Like, Jesus is like, listen, man, you've been ill for 38 years, and I healed you. Like, like, let's not sin anymore, because we don't want that to return. And so he goes and says, it's his fault. He did it. It's his fault. It's his fault. Like, like I'm not suggesting that that was necessarily a sin, but that just kind of seems like not the response that Jesus was expecting, right? So at the instigation of this man, we get Jesus face-to-face with the religious leaders answering the question, how dare you heal someone on the Sabbath? How dare you violate the rules? But before we move on to the second point, let's just pause. This event is real. This event is real. Jesus was a real person who walked up to another real person who was in real suffering and Jesus delivered him from his suffering. So 
We do not have to make the work of Jesus and the kingdom of God only about spiritual things. We do not have to make the work of Jesus and the kingdom of God only about spiritual things. Because if God, through his son, is able to raise the dead, then he's able to cure your diseases. If God, through his son, is able to pronounce you forgiven of your sin, then he's able to relieve the consequences of sin, which is death and suffering. So friends, here with lifelong illnesses, friends here with handicaps, friends here with physical maladies, friends here with emotional brokenness, friends here diagnosed with anxiety and depression and a whole host of other things, know this, our Jesus is able. He's able. And if he chooses to deliver, it will be for your joy and to testify to the fact that he is God. And we get the privilege of following a Savior who gives joy and honors himself and can do so in the same moment. And if you are here and you're carrying that ongoing struggle, that ongoing illness, that ongoing malady, that ongoing um, emotional um, struggle, know this. That Jesus is not saying if you would repent enough, he would heal you. He is not saying that it's your fault. He is not saying that if you could just get enough sin out, he would give you the spiritual eternal medicine that he's now withholding from you. That is not true. And we can take verses like go and sin no more and say, see, so the problem is your sin. Well, look, the problem for everything is my sin. The problem in my family, my sin. The problem in my bank account, my sin. The problem in this church, my sin. The problem on our elder team, my sin. The problem in your Sunday school class that I'm not even in, my sin. The problem in my marriage, my sin. The problem with my health, yeah, my sin. The problem across the board, sin is an issue everywhere. But Jesus heals in spite of sin. And Jesus saves in spite of sin. And we cannot make these one-to-one correlations of if this, then that. The if this, then that happened in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. And it's not like that. We obey Jesus. We cry out to Jesus. We ask Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. And how he dispenses his grace is always for our good and always for his glory. And we can believe that. And friends, I want to be very clear. I know the issues in this room. If you're new to Redeemer, or maybe you're visiting today, like we're a big old pile of brokenness here. Broken lives, tempers, marriages on the edge. People here actually take medication and we're not ashamed of it. People struggling emotionally, people struggling physically, people struggling financially, people wishing God would just relieve the tension and just relieve the suffering just a little bit. 
and we believe that he's able, and we believe that he sustains us, and we believe that he is with us, and we believe that he has not forsaken us, and we believe that he cares for us, and we believe that he's given us one another to help one another walk through this world, and we don't believe that if we would just repent of that one thing, it would all go away. And I hope some of you with chronic suffering today are relieved a little bit because um, Christians are often the worst people to be around when you're suffering. Just do this. Just do that. Have you tried this? I got the solution for that. And it just makes people in chronic suffering want to go lock themselves up in a room and say, I'm done with the world. So maybe that leads to my final point. Let's understand that Jesus is able, but let's love people and not subtly throw arrows at them as if their suffering is their fault. Now listen, I'm getting off point here. Are we good? Can can we go with this a little bit? Like if you embezzle money from your company and you lose your job, like that is your fault. If you cheat on your math test tomorrow and you make a zero, do they still do that in school? Okay, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Um. (laughs) You cheat on your math test tomorrow and you make a zero, like that is your fault. But everything in this world doesn't have that one-to-one correlation of cause and effect and doesn't have that one-to-one correlation of of if you would just get yourself right, then God would give you more blessing. Because if the world was created where we earned God's blessing, our lives would all be a whole lot worse than they are right now. But we live in a world created by a God and worship a God who dispenses blessing not because it's earned, but because he chooses to dispense it. And that is for our good. So now, back to the tension point. So this healing event, if you'd like to talk to me about any of that later, I'll be right out there in our new, bigger foyer to welcome you. We can talk more, okay? And we can all get a sinus infection from the dust together. The tension point. This event leads to a tension point. And the tension point, we're told, comes in verse 18. Because Jesus was working on the Sabbath. You don't work on the Sabbath. God rested on the seventh day. And he commanded his people to rest on the seventh day. But here's what you need to know. Did God on the seventh day of creation cease to hold the world together by the word of his power? No, because if he would have, the world would have ended on the seventh day. So there was a way in which God was God and God held the world together and he still rested on the seventh day. If that boggles your mind, welcome to the club. But if God ever ceased to hold the world together and to cause it to continue existing, it would cease to exist. So did God work on the seventh day? In some way, he, he says, let me rephrase that question. Did God sustain the world on the seventh day? Yes. And did God sustain the world every Sabbath since the creation of the world? And we're not going to argue about how many of those Sabbaths there have been. But did God sustain the world every Sabbath on since the world was created. Yes. 
So when they come to Jesus and say, dude, why are you working on the Sabbath? And he says, I'm doing the work of my father. What's he saying? I work on the Sabbath. I sustain the world. I'm, I'm, I'm making a big tongue twister out of this. I sustain the world and I do the work that only God can do. What Jesus is saying is, you're wrong to think that I'm wrong because I am God. Unless you think we're reading too much into it, John says, yeah, they wanted to kill him because he was claiming that he was God. I mean, it's like you caught your kid um, staying up past their bedtime and you went in their room and you said, hey, wh- why did you stay up an hour late? And they said, because I'm the king of this place. Like, like, they didn't have to say that. They did not have to raise the ante. They did not have to go there. But Jesus did. He said, verse 17, my father is working into now and so am I. Okay, now, Jesus, we have ourselves a problem at this here religious festival. So Jesus is going to go on and he is going to engage with the Jews and make it very clear that the tension in this story has nothing to do with lame people walking and it has nothing to do with Jesus being a healer. It has everything to do with why Jesus does such things. And he's going to point out three things. Number one, he's going to point out that he and the Father act in unison because he and the Father are one. So Jesus is going to point out that he and the Father act in unison because he and the Father are one. Number two, Jesus is going to claim that whoever hears and believes his word has eternal life, will not face judgment, and will pass from death to life. Jesus is going to claim that whoever hears and believes his word has eternal life, will not face judgment, and will pass from death to life. Number three, Jesus is going to claim that the scriptures and the law and Moses himself point to Jesus. Jesus is going to claim that if you miss his saving power and you miss him in the scriptures, you've missed the point. Those are three huge claims, and I only have five minutes. So let's see what we can do here. Verses 19 through 24, Jesus says that he and the Father act in unison. 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Okay, there's so much more here, but can you just highlight verse 19? Jesus and the Father act in unison. So what Jesus is claiming is, is is that when I heal, it's because the Father wanted me to heal. When I speak, it's because the Father wanted me to speak. When I pour out salvation and grace and mercy, it's because the Father wanted me to pour out salvation and grace and mercy. When I pour out judgment and condemnation, it's because the Father wanted me to pour out judgment and condemnation. When I tell you that you stand condemned, it's because you stand condemned in the eyes of the Father. Do you see that? Jesus is claiming throughout this passage that he and the Father act in unison. 
And then Jesus is going to continue to up the ante of this tension point. He's going to say that whoever hears and believes in him has eternal life, does not have judgment, and will pass from death to life. Verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honored the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So again, there's so much here, but just underline the end of verse 24 and hear what Jesus said. He, or, or sorry, all of verse 24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal life. He does not what? Come into judgment, but has passed from what? Death into life. What Jesus is saying is that the only way to have eternal life, the only way to not face eternal judgment, the only way to be translated from eternal death into eternal life is through Jesus Christ. We all memorized it, and it comes later in John chapter 4. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making that claim in even a fuller way here in this passage. So do you see that in verse 24? There's so much more there, but it's clear in verse 24. Third, Jesus is claiming that the Scriptures point to him, and if you miss him, you miss the Scriptures, and you miss salvation. Look with me at verse Where do I want to go? Verse 42. I'm sorry, verse 39. It took me a minute. Verse 39. Jesus says to the Jewish people, the Jewish religious leaders, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. I mean, look, like just cover that up and what do we all go? Like, yeah, man. Of course we search the scriptures because of course eternal life is in the scriptures. But Jesus is going to add a nuance to that. If you miss the Savior in the scriptures, you've missed the point. So keep reading. It's the scriptures that bear witness about me. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 44 how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And so if you want to underline something in your Bible, underline verse 46. Here's what Jesus says. Moses refers to the first five books of the scriptures. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses was the foundation point of the Jewish people as a religious nation representing God in the world. He's the one upon whom they were all looking. His word was the law. His word is truth, but his word, Jesus says, pointed to Jesus. So what, what Jesus is saying here is Moses minus Jesus is nothing. 
Moses minus Jesus misses the point of Moses. Moses minus Jesus will still leave you apart from God. Now, Moses never used the name Jesus, but he said there is a prophet like me who will come and he will speak God's truth to you. And so Jesus looks at these folks and he says, you can have Moses, but if you don't have me, you have nothing. So here's the claim. Here's the claim. And you might say, man, we should have spent a lot more time there. Yeah, we should, but that's what chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, and all the rest are for. So we're going to spend a whole lot of time here. But here's the claim. Jesus is going publicly on the record that he and the Father are are in unity because they are one and that by the Father's will, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, come through Jesus and Jesus alone. And not only that, but every page of the Bible from Genesis 1-1 all the way through the very end, but Jesus is referring to the end of the book of Malachi at this point. Every single verse is pointing to the one who was to come to bring God's salvation. And Jesus is saying, I am he. So the question before us all today is this. Who do we say Jesus is? Who do we say Jesus is? So perhaps you're here today and you're kind of exploring Christianity. You're exploring this particular church. You're really wrestling with truth I would say this, Jesus is all of our only hope. He is all of our only Savior. He is the one upon whom our faith, our forgiveness, and our eternal life rest. Look to him. How do I do that? You take this book, the Bible, Genesis through Revelation. There's copies in the seats under you. You may take one as a gift from us today. You take it and you read it because Jesus is revealed there. You take it and you read it because salvation is laid out there in and through Jesus Christ. And we would love to talk with you about your questions, about your struggles, about your doubts, about your fears. We do not shun them in any way. We would love to talk to you about them. Perhaps you're here today going, yeah, man, I'm in. I'm on Team Jesus then the challenge for us, the challenge for all of us who place our faith in Christ is this. Will we allow him to be the powerful savior that he claimed he was over every ounce of our being, over every piece of our homes, over every piece of our church, over every piece of our lives? Is there a part of us where we're not allowing the declaration that, that the scriptures are about me and God's salvation flows through me and how you respond to me is everything? Is there a piece of us that's not allowing those truth declarations to reign? Is there a piece of us where we're like, yeah, 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 I know the salvation flows through Jesus, but really at the core, we're trusting all these other elements of our lives to justify us before God. Church attendance will never justify us before God. Being baptized in and of itself will never justify us before God. 
Giving a bunch of money while welcomed will never justify us before God. Helping at work days where we all got sinus infections will never justify us before God. Memorizing scripture in and of itself will never justify us before God. Going to a Christian school or being homeschooled will never justify us before God. Having the right habits on the side will never in and of itself justify us before God. We are all so prone to set up these other things that become our hope. They become our identity. They become our joy. They become our satisfaction. And Jesus is saying, I came to kill all of that. Because in me, you will find life. In me, you will find forgiveness. In me, you'll find hope. So Christians, I'm just challenging us to live as if Jesus really is that mighty and powerful of a Savior. Because if we really believe that, we'll open the Scriptures. If we really believe that the Scriptures show us Christ and all of his glory and all of his saving power, we will open them. And I'm horrified at how many of us in this room never open them. Open the Bible and let's meet our Savior every day and let's enjoy who he is and what he does. And let's let him speak to us and shape where we need to repent and shape where we need to live by faith and shape where we need to follow him.